We return to our discussion with Dr. Arlene Geronimus regarding weathering and the science and replication of studies that has validated that theory. This is 91.7 KOOP, Austin, Texas. Now, last question, and we'll make it quick since we're running out of time. You know, I was looking through the literature. There seems to be other studies that are pointing in the same direction. So this is not something that just your team has discovered, but it's been speculated on, and I imagine it's been continued to be researched over the years. So is there a growing database that supports the claims that you're making? Absolutely. I and my colleagues have been studying this probably for close to 30 years, but at the beginning, I don't think we had the broad knowledge we have now of what happens at the molecular level, if we're talking about the telomeres, there was much more singular focus on on individual behaviors as the way to think about racial or ethnic or class disparities. Um, we've gotten much more kind of sophisticated in, in our understanding, on the one hand, of the whole physiology of body system dysregulation and cellular aging, and on the other hand, about the sort of critical race theory and the ways that racism can impact health in both objective and subjective ways. And so over time, our work has provided more and more evidence in favor of this perspective in a number of different populations and different ways of measuring it and different health outcomes. And others have also studied this. And so I think it's, it's, or studied parts of it, for instance, the work on stress and telomeres was not initially done in the context of racial disparities. It was just done as a way to try to understand biological aging as we began to have an aging population. Mm -hmm. So there's these different strands of research that have gotten more and more sophisticated and under this umbrella of weathering our stress physiology, more and more of us have been able to bring them together and apply them to the racial health inequities. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been very insightful, that racism and poverty, it it literally kills. There's science behind that, not just common sense. Absolutely. And I think you've explicated that very well. We've had the great pleasure of visiting with Dr. Arlene Geronimus at the University of Michigan. She's a research professor at Population Studies Center. Her research can be found by Googling her name, which last name is G-E-R-O-N-I-M-U-S. All right, well, thank you for bringing light into darkness, and thank you for your research and work. We look forward to the further progress of, of your research. Keep us posted. Keep me posted, please. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank, thank you, ma'am, so, so, so much. Okay, welcome back. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is the premier community station of the nation, 91.7 FM. And we just heard a segment from a show we aired about a year ago with Dr. Arlene Geronimus. She was speaking about the concept of weathering that is a, an outcome of three or more decades of research. It's a fascinating understanding. One of the things that we discovered in a Brookings Institute 2016 study was that men born in 1950 that were in the highest 10% of the income category versus those that were in the bottom 10% had a like 14-year difference in lifespan. 
So poverty matters and other types of discrimination, things besides poverty, can impact the quality of life and the longevity of life. She spoke mainly to the issues around race and prejudice and the challenges associated with those more demeaning types of inferences that they showed actually did impact the longevity of life. I don't want to go back over all of her work, but we at Co-op Radio are celebrating the Stonewall celebration of 1969 and wanted to dedicate this show to our brothers and sisters and transgender folks that are victimized every day by another type of discrimination. And we are really blessed to have with us as our guest, Heath Collins with the Waterloo Counseling Center. So first of all, Heath, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, uh, Heath has been working for Waterloo Counseling for close to five years and currently serves as a staff therapist and provides individual and group psychotherapy to uh, LGBT individuals as well as the general population clients. He has quite a history of working in the counseling field after receiving his, his LBSW in January of 2007, he was providing case management to adults and children with developmental disabilities and foster care settings. But I should share that LBSW is a licensed bachelor social worker. So this is before I guess I guess you got your LMSW. Mm-hmm. You also did work and practiced in the North Texas area in Denton and dealt and continue to deal with a lot of uh, LBGT issues and particularly the types of symptom management that's needed for many mental health illnesses that are more pervasive in our LGBT population, largely because of some of the issues that I think Dr. Geronimus was referring to. But I wanted to start off by, first of all, asking you, your work is also includes a lot of substance abuse clients and, and such. And there are a lot of issues that affect people when they have a substance abuse problem. Particularly, though, I, I just wanted to get your reflections on some of the particular challenges that LBGT folks face as they socialize and, and drink and may or may not develop alcohol or drug problems. But so, some of the stigmas, some of the, the angst that one feels, I know in my own experience of working in this field, that uh, alcohol and drugs can be very uh, rewarding in addressing stress-related and any type of psychic type of pain, so to speak. So if we as a culture live in a kind of an alienated type of culture where, where we can't find the decency to let people live their lives and cast aspersions and other cultural types of forms of discrimination upon them, how does that play uh, in the addiction and mental health field with respect to your to your clientele? Can you educate us on that a little bit? Sure. And you know, it's a huge issue in the LGBT community, and um, I've seen studies that somewhere between uh, people who are LGBT have about a two to three times uh, higher rate of uh, risk for substance abuse than the, the general population. And I've also seen another study where uh, people who are questioning their sexuality have up to a five times higher rate of substance abuse. And a lot of that comes down to the, the continued discrimination that the community faces, and it's especially been hard over this last year, you know, with the isolation from uh, from COVID and from the pandemic, preventing people from being able to go out and be with their communities over the last year. It's, it's been very isolating. So that's compounding everything. But also on top of that, 
particularly for my clients who are transgender, they've been facing this wave of anti-trans laws across the country throughout this year. And it seems like almost every time you turn on the news, that's being featured. And when you constantly see yourself being portrayed in that sort of light, and especially being presented as sort of the new boogeyman, it really takes a toll on you. And it's, it's so easy to start internalizing a lot of those messages that you see on TV and definitely heightens the, the stress level. So drugs and alcohol tend to be a form of self-medication for a lot of people. And on top of that, a lot of people turn to substances to help them let their walls down mm-hmm. and to help them get rid of their inhibitions and, and maybe live a bit more authentically and be a little bit more their authentic self mm-hmm. than they feel like they can be when they're sober. So it's really easy to get trapped in this cycle of substance abuse. Yeah, very good. You know, I was reviewing a study on LGBT youth and mental health, 2019. I don't know if you're familiar with the Trevor Project, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a large study that came out just a couple of years ago that uh, had some 34,000 respondents. It's the largest survey of LGBT youth mental health ever conducted and provided some really concerning data that I wanted to share with you and have you comment on. It included that 39% of LGBT youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past 12 months. I mean, that's an amazing and very disconcerting number. And more than half of transgender and non-binary youth have seriously considered suicide as well. It went on to to indicate that 71% of LGBT youth reported feeling sad or hopeless for at least two weeks in the past year, and less than half of LGBT respondents were out to an adult at school with youth. In other words, they're carrying this baggage, if you will. I mean, it's not, it's baggage in the sense of their concern and their worries on how other people are going to think about them based Mm -hmm. based on their, you know, their sexual orientation. But, and then finally, just a couple more real quick, two in three LGBT youth reported that someone tried to convince them to change their sexual orientation. I remember seeing this video, Prayers for Bobby. I don't know if you ever watched that or not. It was several years ago, and it, and it was about a, a very conservative family whose son, Bobby, gay, and they tried to convert him. And it's just an incredibly Sigourney Weaver played the very uh, religious conservative uh, mother and, and, and such. But first, I wanted to ask you first about something that I think is, is now the science is really showing that this, this conversion therapy can be really, really damaging to the individuals that are usually, you know, kind of coerced into it to begin with and such. Can you speak to that? Is that is that your understanding? And can you speak a little bit about that issue too? Sure. And, you know, it, it's absolutely damaging. And when you are, when other people try to change such a fundamental and unchanging part of yourself, that really sends you a lot of messages that you can, you know, definitely internalize. And especially if you're, you know, a youth, that that really stays with you. And, you know, study after study has shown that they are not successful. There's not any way to make somebody change their sexual orientation or their, their gender identity. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, it, unfortunately, it, it, that still very much is an ongoing issue that we need to, to deal with. And luckily, there are other states that are starting to outlaw it, but it, it still is very much legal here in Texas for, for therapists to provide that kind of treatment. Yeah, it's also even a trickier thing, right, when you're a youth, you know, 
you don't you mm-hmm. know someone is going to compel you i don't I, I don't know i just can't imagine that's so horrific let me back up because i wanted to go back to some of these issues around drug use and and i found in this there was a national survey on drug use and health it's that nsduh there with samsha the substance abuse and mental health services administration uh, which is a branch of the u.s department of health and human services and they come up with the, the most recent one i could find was data from 2015 it was published in 2016 but it was really, like you were indicating, it was striking that the illicit drug use, when you compared the, the gay population to the sexual majority population, or whatever you want to call that, it was like 39.1% had used an illicit drug in the past year compared to 17% of the general population. With marijuana, it's particularly, there's a big difference, at 30.7% versus 129 Prescription drugs, 10.4 versus 4.5. These are huge differences. This is like two to three to four times greater a greater use. You go right down the line with cocaine, it was two to three times greater. Hallucinogens was two or three times greater. There's a misuse of prescription stimulants at, at rates that are over two times greater. Inhalants, methamphetamine at a rate of three times greater than the general population. And then even heroin, three times greater. So there is, like you were indicating, you use this term self-medicating. When people internalize the misrepresentations and misperceptions of a, of a mean kind of ethos, it seems to be particularly damaging. And we've already talked about the suicide rates and stuff. So when you talk to clients, and I would imagine the most important message is that there is nothing wrong with them and that just happen to be in an environment in which there's just a, a really tough time of it type of thing. So how, mm-hmm. how, do, how do you build that self-worth and that courage and in order to reverse some of these trends with respect to these mental health issues? Sure. And I, I think that's exactly where you need to start with people is by reinforcing the fact that there is nothing wrong with them and that they are not broken in any sort of way. And I, I, I think that's a really important point to bring up with uh, when we talk about substance abuse in particular with the LGBT population. I feel like the messaging on this has changed a little bit as far as I can tell, but I, I know when I was growing up, there was a lot of misinterpreting that data and saying that because people who are LGBT have higher rates of substance abuse, that there must be something fundamentally broken with them. And that is absolutely not true. Just across the board, when people are under significant amounts of stress, when they when they face discrimination, when they feel rejected by their families or by society at large, that is a typical outcome is, is substance abuse. So, you know, it's really clear, especially when you're working with somebody who has a substance abuse issue, to show some compassion around that and validate their experience that led up to starting to have that issue. I think that's a really important part. And another really important thing that comes up a lot is when people have been under that sort of stress from discrimination or from from rejection for extended periods of time, very easy for them to develop dysthymia, which uh, dysthymia is generally, the, the definition is that it's a depressive episode that lasts for at least two years. Um, a lot of times I work with people that have been at least mildly, if not moderately, depressed for so long that that's their normal now. Mm -hmm. So when you're in that, you may not even know that you're depressed because this is just sort of normal for you. So helping people to recognize the signs when things are going wrong and helping them to develop some good 
self-care skills and coping skills for, for how to manage those symptoms, and also hopefully helping them to get connected with their community and to meet peers and to um, build what we generally call a chosen family, you know, the, the people who may not be biological, but, but who are your support system. Mm-hmm. You know, I also wanted to ask you to comment on, you know, some, sometimes you're not so sure what's, what's myth and what's fact, but I was enamored by what you said earlier about the effects of alcohol and drugs can kind of make people feel almost anesthetize you against your own feelings, I guess, in a certain way and, and make you feel more fitting in. But when you look at the places in which are safe for people that are gay, or just say feel safe, it seems like a lot of those that were associated with, with like gay bars and those types of things. Mm-hmm. And then you had mm-hmm. COVID where you had so many of these restaurants and clubs and that type of thing were, were shutting down. And I guess, obviously, as an LMSW, you're, you're not prescribing and say, look, what you need to do is go to a gay bar at least three times a week. You know, what, what types of other locations where people feel much safer? Not that that's right, but that it seems like that's really important that people feel acceptance. And, uh, mm-hmm. and at the same time, you know, we all work towards trying to change our culture in which there's more and more of those venues available. But can you tell us a little bit about, from a counseling perspective, what types of activities and, and social groups that you encourage your clients to maybe get connected with? Sure. Here in Austin, we have so many different opportunities that are separate from, from the bars, that, that aren't necessarily surrounded by alcohol and, and other substances. I very often, I'll recommend that people check out meetup.com. Uh, there's plenty of gay clubs on there. I know there's hiking groups. There's a dodgeball group. Any interest that you can think of, there will be supportive clubs full of people who are validating and affirming. So it just takes a little bit of digging online, but there's a lot of opportunities here in, in Austin. Um, I think it does get a lot trickier for, for people who live out in more uh, rural areas where there there aren't those sorts of opportunities. But I, I think that we're very lucky being here in Austin that there there are plenty of other options out there. Yeah, and I just want to remind folks that we are visiting with Heath Collins. He is with the Waterloo Counseling Center. I know in my own experience of working in this field years ago and that Waterloo was a real godsend for so many of our clients and such. And I just thought maybe you could share a little bit about the, the diversity of services that Waterloo provides for Travis County residents. Sure. So at Waterloo Counseling Center, we offer individual and couples therapy as well as group therapy. Because of the pandemic, we've still been completely online, completely virtual. Um, We offer e-therapy, which would be webcam-based. It's a little bit like doing a Skype call or a FaceTime call. And we also do phone therapy. Hopefully, as the environment changes, we'll be going back to in-person at some point. But those are our main services. And we also offer a sliding scale for people who aren't insured or would otherwise have financial barriers to being able to get therapy. We, um, a really core part of our mission is making therapy and making treatment accessible. And additionally, yeah. at the start of the year, we joined with Texas Health Action, who runs the KIND clinics here in Austin, who offer sexual health services and gender-affirming care services as well. Yeah, so if people want more information, is there, is there a website that you can share with us for, for mm-hmm. Waterloo? Sure, it's www.waterloocounseling.org. And just one more time, in case somebody is trying to write that down real quick. If mm-hmm. you can. Sure, it's www.org. 
Okay, very good. Well, let, let me take a step back because I wanted to go back to these challenges. When you're growing up and you're an adolescent, you know, there's a number of stressors for teenagers, puberty and fitting in with friends, uh, you know, just going to school, conflict with parents and planning for the future, all of these things. This stress that's associated with additional stress that LGBT youth face is pretty disconcerting to me, at least. And I'm, I'm just wondering, there, the research that I'm looking at, there's not just family acceptance issues, and we've already mentioned that a lot of children won't even won't out with their own parents and stuff like that, but bullying is a big thing, too. And the stigma mm-hmm. and discrimination and those types of issues, can you identify what you think policy-wise, and I realize that there's some things that you can't change through policy, but I think, mm-hmm. ed, you know, the basic education, I, I know for me, you know, before I could drive a car, I had to take driver's ed, you know, and I've been a big proponent, mm-hmm. like, before you start using alcohol and other drugs, you should take an alcohol and drug course, you know, and I just feel like if people really understood the, the pain and the angst that are reflected in these mental health issues with our young people and older adult LGBT population, that there's so much that people that are doing nothing can be doing to make and to help people embrace their sexuality in, in, in a healthier way than, than is the dominant mode, you know, as we speak tonight. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think the education piece is, is absolutely vital with that. I, I think that it's really important that that be discussed in schools, mm-hmm. um, particularly as part of an anti-bullying program. I know that that gets very controversial here in Texas, but I, I think that's absolutely fundamental. And I think it's also important for uh, teachers and administrators to have ways of indicating that they are allies and that they're a safe place for a student to go to if they need to talk to somebody. I, I know for quite a while, I, I think this is still the trend, people could post safe place signs on their doors that would have a, a rainbow on it so that you know this is a safe person that I can talk to. Yeah, I think that good. sort of visibility is, is another vital piece of this. Yeah, that's exactly kind of the, the kinds of suggestions that I think are really helpful. So it's kind of like a universal symbol, that uh, the rainbow symbol and such, and just make it more prevalent so people... Well, well let me ask you this. I know we're, we're just about out of time, and I really appreciate your perspective and your experience. I was looking at your resume, and I you got a lot of specialties, Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based therapies and such. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, so much about our feeling state is created by how we think about ourselves and such. And just as a message to people, no matter where they're at, how does this Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based therapy experience that you have, how, can you translate that into a number of sentences that would help people maybe feel uh, better about themselves? Sure. So I, I think the, the field of mindfulness-based therapy is, is so exciting. And previously, and, and still now, um, Cognitive behavioral therapy has been one of the main approaches to therapy, which the mission of cognitive behavioral therapy is to help you learn how to challenge your own negative thoughts and hopefully replace those with positive thoughts, and that by doing so, hopefully that'll affect your your behavior and how you live your life. So mindfulness-based approaches take a slightly different um, approach to that, and rather than trying to change your thoughts, changing your relationship to your thoughts, and to your mind, so that you don't have to necessarily engage with every negative thought that comes up or every painful memory that comes up, but instead you can learn ways to bring yourself back into the present. Mm -hmm. And one of the best ways to do that and one of the most accessible ways is to focus on your breath 
because that's always available to you. And, you know, we found that when people take nice, deep abdominal breaths, it helps to undo their current stress level. Because when we get really anxious, if we're, we're reliving a trauma in our mind or if something really um, awful is happening to us right now in the present, we tend to start taking really shallow and really rapid chest breaths, and that sets off your stress response. But if you can recognize that you're doing that and just take some nice, deep abdominal breaths. That is very good health advice, Heath. And it ties back to the research and is validated by the research of Dr. Geronimus that we started the show with, namely that discrimination is more than hurtful. It's harmful. It is an assault on the dignity and the value of another. It creates a stress response in many folks and a very, very prolonged chronic stress response creates health and actual, can take years off your life as well as reduce the quality of the life that we have. And so these exercises that can reduce stress seem to be particularly more important for those that suffer different forms or multiple forms of discrimination to counteract the overall negative health effects that Dr. Geronimo's weathering work has documented over the last 30 years. Well, listen, we are out of time. I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to visit with you, and we would like to stay in touch with you. And one more time, if people want to access any of the Waterloo Counseling offerings, the web listing again is what? Sure. It's www.waterloocounseling.org. Okay, very good. Well, we've had the great pleasure of visiting with with Heath Collins. I also wanted to just give a shout out to Kat Griffith with the Elizabeth Christian Public Relations Firm that helped us get connected. And let's stay in touch, Heath, and keep up the good work and take good care of yourself. Thanks, you too. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. Check out the bozo.